even if both were willing, it doesn't always mean both are capable of having a healthy relationship. It doesn't mean that the person who may say they're willing isn't still repeating really harmful behaviors and not getting yeah. the help they need that would cause that to be a dangerous scenario for pursuing a relationship with them. There are some things that break relationships in life and yeah. um, that break trust and that break the ability to have healthy, healthy sort of relationships. Um, and we need to be concerned for the health and well-being of people. You're listening to Don't Repeat This, the show where we talk about the stuff you're not supposed to bring up at the dinner table. I'm Gail, and if you've listened to last week's episode, you'll remember that it was the first part of a conversation I had with Josiah Meyer, the host of the podcast Seeking Health, on the topic of going no contact with people who've harmed you. If you haven't had a chance to listen to that episode, please jump back to last week's episode before listening to this one, as it's a continuation of that conversation. And if you have listened, here we go with part two. I wanted to pick up the story with, you had mentioned that uh, Christianity, religion, evangelical faith was a great help to you, but then later on became something that was a little bit difficult. So let's start with how did, how did your faith help you as you were in this very lonely, very chaotic place? How did having a faith help you in this time? Um, I guess help could be a, uh, an interesting word, right? Cause what might have been helpful to me back then, just like coping strategies can be helpful right. for a time, might not be helpful once you're outside of those traumatic situations, you might need to learn to let go of certain traumatic coping strategies. So in some ways, um, fantastic as a little kid to feel like someone was in control because everything right. felt out of control. Right. right. Yeah. Um, you know, trying to have easy answers to things, uh, easy solutions. I mean, faith provided a very detailed roadmap, which gave me a sense of control as a kid. And I think faith was appealing to me as a kid because it gave me answers in a world where I felt very on my own and like I needed guidance and I needed someone out there to care. Um, I think it was the more positive aspects was feeling like I was made with value that someone out there, even if it was a divine being entity, cared about my well-being, um, thought that I mattered, and listened to me. I think mm -hmm. as a kid in an abusive scenario, I don't know about for you, Josiah, but for myself, I don't think I felt very listened to as a child. Yeah, I don't feel like anybody really gave their ear to me very much um, to really understand and hear how I was doing. But prayer is one of those wonderful things where you can talk for hours and you're listened to and nobody cuts you off. Mm -hmm. And um, you can speak your heart and no one's going to tell on you for what you're saying and you're not going to get in trouble for it, right? Like you can just, so prayer was something that um, was definitely something I did a lot of as a kid. Um, I used to pray with my sister at the bottom of my bed at night. We'd whisper because we'd get in trouble for my foster mother if she ever caught us. She liked to make wow. fun of us for our faith, actually. So that was intense. Okay. Um, yeah. So like that was something I, I, I remember actually going to church, my bio parents would bring us to church on Sunday. And when I get home from church, my sister and I would, I didn't get enough out of like, um, just my Sunday school lessons. Cause I was just eating it all up. I, I was in desperately need of some anchors in my life. And so whatever I learned wasn't enough. I'd be like saying to my sister, what did you learn at church today? And be taking notes on whatever she learned because, and I remember the kids in my Sunday school class falling off their chairs in boredom and not paying attention. And I was that one kid just sitting there on the edge of my seat, like, tell me more. I want to know, tell me more. And I felt like 
um, teaching about, you know, divine being that cared about me was something I definitely latched onto and helped me to cope, to not want to end my life. That helped me give me a sense of purpose. Like I was created for some reason, um, gave me answers to things It helped me feel loved. Um, yeah, it gave a lot of those kind of benefits where that was something that was extremely important to me and that I held to very tightly. And I felt like God was my best friend. In fact, um, in evangelical culture, I mean, that's what you're taught is your little personal best buddy. And that, you know, mm -hmm. that personal relationship is very emphasized and it was helpful in, in a lot of ways to me. Um, yeah, I remember having this, this, I have this vivid memory of being a little kid and crying in my bed and praying to God and being like, look, this is obviously before I grew enough in, in my spiritual teachings to be told God personally comes to be with you. But I thought like, I don't want to interrupt you, God. I know you have a lot of people talking to you. So I remember praying and saying like, you, maybe I can't ask you to come be with me because you have too many people needing you. But like, if you could just send an angel to like, come comfort me, I'll make space. And I remember rolling over in my bed and like putting a spot beside me and being like, this is your space. So you could come comfort me and lie beside me in bed mm. and feeling like there was a tangible presence that responded in that moment. And when I look back at it now, I'm like, well, your mind is a powerful thing. And if you believe an angel's coming to comfort you, you'll feel a presence comforting you. Um, so I don't know what to make out of it now, but as a kid, I remember what a source of comfort that was to, to believe like, God would just come and be with me if I needed him to be yeah. with me. Yeah. That's so powerful. I, I resonate with that. I, I had similar experiences as also a lonely child and uh, I can just really resonate emotionally with, with, I can see that little girl needing somebody next to her. And this ties into a theme, a thread that I'm pulling about. There's something about the evangelical version of Christianity that works so well in dysfunctional homes. The story fits mm -hmm. when you're from an emotionally neglected, abused background. It fits. And, and you crave the rules and you crave the structure and you crave the simplicity of the story. Um, that's not a thread I'm done pulling. I don't know why exactly it fits, but um, there's different versions. But then, then it becomes destructive at a certain point. But it, do, it does provide so much comfort when you're in those backgrounds. Um, can you talk a bit more? You had brought up the term spiritual bypassing in the previous episode. Can you just tell me what spiritual bypassing is? Um, from what I understood of it, it's a way to use spiritual language and terminology as a way to um, jump over dealing with your emotions. I think I had listened to, I believe it's Allison. If you look up Peter Enns, he has a, a podcast called The Bible for Normal People. And he interviews yeah. someone named Allison, who's, a, I think she's a psychologist. Uh, she deals more in this field, but she did a whole masters or repeat. I don't know what she did on this topic. <laughs> and I was just fascinating. It was a great one talking about spiritual bypassing. And I feel like she does an in-depth on it that helped me. Um, but it was it, it just explaining that we do label certain emotions as negative or bad, and we try and jump over them. And we say, you were mentioning it, I think in the last, um, last episode about those trite answers to things that yeah. um, can do a lot of damage. So like everything works for the good and like God is in control. And like, I mean, if you think about it, like saying, I think of often, I think of Job's friends, actually, if I'm going to think of yes. a biblical example. And how when he was in suffering, they're trying to find answers to everything. And it's not always a helpful thing to do. It's not always mm -hmm. like 
human suffering and what people are going through doesn't always need you to box it up neatly and tie it up in a in a neat a neat package. I think for myself, so this year I lost five uncles and a grandfather in less than oh, a year. No. None of them to COVID, but it, two of them were uncles who were my favorite uncles, one on my dad's side and one on my mom's side, people who meant so much to me, who um, to this day, like, you know, yeah, they'll always, my son is named after one of them. So um, they're special people to me. And this has been the first year where I have allowed myself to grieve without putting a positive spin on things. And I think I heard someone use the expression that um, grief is sacred. And that um, participating in grief is a sacred act. And that was a mind-blowing idea for me. And I think tying into stuff I was saying on the last episode about the book of Lamentations and seeing through scripture that thread of, of grief being honored as something that doesn't need to have a positive ending on it or be wrapped up with a neat bow, that it could just yeah. be as it is, be something sacred. Um, yeah, like instead of Job's friends trying to shift blame into, well, if this bad thing happened, you did the wrong thing or you're being punished or just to acknowledge like sometimes life is hard and it's okay to just be sad yeah. and not have an answer or reason or, and I think spiritual bypassing is a lot of people's, like we're, I also had brought up, just people being uncomfortable with sitting in grief with other people of yeah. them not. I remember once someone said to me, Gail, I, I don't know what to go do with the funeral, with the, the death of their, I've never lost a parent. And someone I knew, uh, a friend of mine, di their parent died and you've lost a parent. And I don't know how to handle that. Like, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. And I remember saying, when my dad died, all I wanted, I didn't expect anyone to fix anything. I just wanted people to be there to show up. Like, and literally like someone writing my condolences or just being there physically without having anything to say was way more than enough. Like it, yeah you know, I didn't need a whole speech. I was in grief. I didn't need someone who could come and say all the right things or come give me a, like, sometimes people are nervous that they don't know what to say or how to help someone suffering. And they don't realize stand there and be quiet and give the other person space to talk or to sit yeah. in silence beside them. And that is more than enough. And that's, we sometimes we're not taught about how to handle those negative, hard feelings. And I think grief is one of them. Anger is one of them. Sadness is one of them. Um, anxiety. Oh, you guys had touched, I think it was your wife on one of your previous podcasts brought up that anxiety is sometimes a, a guide to letting you know you're not safe. Instead yeah. of us, you know, as Christians, we're being told, don't be anxious about anything, mm -hmm. you know, uh, the verse, you know, but in everything by prayer and petition, present your request to God. And yeah. I think the first person uh, that put it in a way that I found helpful was when your wife said, anxiety oh, is something cool. that's there to let you know that things are unsafe. And sometimes we have anxiety because of a past trauma and now we are in a safe scenario and we're drawing yeah. a correlation where it doesn't need to be. And mm -hmm. maybe that's where it's helpful to just bring your petition to God. But mm -hmm. at the same time, sometimes your anxiety is helpful. It's, it's a, it's, um, uh, I actually went to therapy <laughs> and my therapist was talking about how, um, your emotions are like lights on a car dashboard. So if yes. your engine light goes on, you don't stick a piece of tape over it and pretend that your engine doesn't have an issue. You, mm -hmm. Like your, so your emotions being engine lights or lights on your car dashboard to tell you what's going on. And instead of using them often in Christian circles, instead of using them to help you analyze what's happening around you and to realize that that might be a red flag, that might be a signal to get my attention. It's like, let's put the tape over all these lights because that means something's wrong and we got to make sure no one thinks anything's wrong with us. Cause we have Jesus and that Jesus mm -hmm. is enough. He can solve everything, help us with every feeling. And if we somehow don't act like everything is okay and we're feeling okay, then we're saying Jesus isn't enough or we're saying yeah. God is not powerful or good enough, or we're going to somehow insult his name and honor by acknowledging that we're having a hard time, yeah. you know?
that by praying, everything didn't feel better all of a sudden, or by doing the right things, it didn't just change how we were feeling or coping, you know? And continuing with this thread of, you know, people that are raised in, in chaos and, you know, an emotionally difficult home, and then they find religion and then religion becomes this way of having all the answers and having everything make sense. And there are kind of versions, like there's churches that I feel like just cater to that, especially within evangelicalism. Like we will tell you all the answers. We will fix everything, come to church and smile and sing the songs. And, and then when a death or a grief comes along, it becomes like an enemy to this. It becomes like, whoa, like that messes with things. And then people do end up like Job's friends trying to uh, explain it all away. And I had a sermon where I said, um, like grief causes us anxiety like other people grieving causes us anxiety because we think well that could cost me like i might have to help them or that could be me there's this feeling of like that could happen to me and somehow the tragedy could rub off on me like it doesn't make sense but like it's still kind of there or that shouldn't be like this existential feeling of like the world is not just because this person died you know and all three of these things are resolved if we can say, well, it's their fault. And that's yeah. how we end up as Job's friend, you know, like it was your fault. Or if we can find some sort of a trite theological way of saying everything works together for good. So this isn't really a tragedy. It's just like a bump on your road to becoming a superhuman, right? Um, and yeah. so we find these trite sort of ways because we need a put everything back together so that we have our whole theological system because that's our safe place. That's our happy place. And I think that sometimes when people go to comfort somebody, what they're really trying to do is comfort themselves because this tragedy has affected them as well. And they're trying to process that, but actually them, like they just need to shut up and, yeah. and not talk Touché. so much. Yeah. To, I, especially your point about it. Sometimes people make it about themselves and really they're, they act like they're trying to comfort you, but it's more they're, I think whenever you come alongside someone, the, the best question to ask is to yourself, if you want to be a help, is what's going on inside of you? Not yes. to make it about you, but to make sure you're not making it about you. Because if listening to someone else's suffering and pain is causing you a tremendous amount of anxiety, then the way you respond to them might become unhelpful because you're going to be trying to comfort yourself or fix things in your own head rather than just being present and allowing that person space. And that's something yeah. that they train counselors is always to be conscious of what's going on in you. If you're dealing with a client and all of a sudden it's triggering something in you, you need to become attentive to that and figure out what's going on in you so that you don't, you know, bring your issues into the counseling session. Yeah. Um, so we've already kind of gone here a little bit, but can you talk more about ways that religion, um, as, as you were in an abusive situation, you needed you needed to find help. You needed to get out of this. How did religion not help you get out of that? How was it the enemy Ooh. to your freedom? Good question. Okay. So there's a few different things. Um, I think uh, one of the things I've noticed in evangelicalism is that need to fetishize trauma in the sense mm. of, uh, I, for me anyway, testimony. I was a youth leader, so we love testimony time. And I, I can put myself in the guilty party of fetishizing trauma. But I was, it was done to me very young where I public speak, like I can speak easily in public. And so, I mean, here's a kid from a foster home who can explain why God worked everything out for the good. And that's an interesting story to bring up front and to have someone talk about how God is there for you in the middle of your trauma. Um, but 
Speaking as a child or a young adult on your own trauma before you've had time to go to therapy without the church offering services to help you with dealing with that, um, just turning it all into look how great God is. I think it even when it fetishizes trauma, and I think that's often done in evangelical uh, environments where testimony time is important and people giving their testimonies is promoted. But also I think um, one of the... um, uh, the harmful elements of that could be for the kids who didn't go through some big trauma. Like I remember having friends who weren't in that scenario say like, I thought maybe I wasn't a real Christian and I prayed to receive God a million times because I didn't have this big story and I didn't go through this big drama and I didn't quit drugs and turn over to Jesus. And like, those were all the stories people gave where, you know, you went through some horrific trauma and then Jesus saved you. So I fit that profile. So I was often asked to speak and given platforms to speak about my trauma, but I look back and I'm like, was I old enough to be speaking from that place of understanding the harm it did to me? Like, did I even understand the impacts of that trauma on me? Do I even understand it now? Probably no. I think unpacking from trauma takes a lifetime. Um, But I think sometimes faith communities can fetishize trauma with the easy answers. Um, I think you were bringing up a lot about how uh how it might fit to be a comfort but i also think formulaic is the word that i would put on it Mm. uh, that need to control i think often religion provides formulas and that's how you know it's religion and it's it's not always helpful is like if you do xyz this is what it's going to produce and this is what's going to come from it so like the testimony time was an idea to promote that formula too you give everything over to jesus and he heals you and he fixes everything right so um yeah i think the testimony stuff i look back at it and i cringe and I, I think through how ethical that is with um, bringing people's trauma up in a public platform like that, um, especially children or, or teenagers or young adults even, um, there's a healing element to speaking for sure. I mm-hmm. definitely am talking with you now because I think it's important that trauma can be discussed. But I think in the way it was done, had a lot of spiritual bypassing overtones that you don't even realize are, are built into the way you're expected to give your, your speech yes. and talk about yeah. things um ending it with how great god is yeah yeah <laughs> it's a very the... clear formula that you're supposed to follow about like once i was a sinner then i met jesus now everything's awesome or yeah. or once i was hurt and now you know jesus fixed that hurt you know whatever it, it ends happy there's a certain formula and then we go to singing and you know it's it's part of the you would never end it the way david ended a lot of his psalms it's just like I'm broken and, and my soul is destroyed and the end, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Think of how many people be like, all right, now let's get up and sing a song to God. <laughs> you know. The problem is we um, don't have those songs that would follow that. That's right? true. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Good point. Um, hmm. um, so what, what was it like for you to start to, because as a child, whatever you experience is normal. But at a certain point, you start to realize, no, this is not normal. This is not okay. And then you start to make that break. And I made that break as a 36-year-old person. But to to understand, no, actually what I experienced was abuse. This was really, really wrong, over the line. Yes, nobody's perfect, but this is beyond that to abuse, to where we need to take action. Um, What was it like for you as a teenager um to make that break make that break and and start recognizing that actually this is not okay 
Okay, that's a great question. That ties into some of my story and how, yeah, how I ended up getting out of my abusive foster home. So <clears throat> I, I told in the previous episode, I, you know, we ta talked to teachers and we weren't believed. Um, and I ended up in a youth group uh, that wasn't the church I had grown up in, but I had a friend from camp who was dating a friend from school. And I'm like, how do you guys know each other? My best friends from two different corners of the world. How'd you guys meet? And it was their youth group. And I was, I had go, didn't go to my church's youth group. I only went on Sundays. So I was very excited as a teenager to try out. Uh, it was nearby where my biological parents lived. So I could, you know, bike right over to that youth group and hang out with my friends. And as a teenager, it's nothing you want more than to hang out with your friends. But anyway, mm -hmm. all that to say, my friend from camp, her dad, um, ran a, a camp for foster kids. That's how I met her, um, a retrieval uh, home. And so I got to know him because he ran some of the, uh, the after church, like the youth group late night programs that like would go on late into the night and we would, I mean, not late into the night, 10 o'clock is late when you're a kid. <laughs> the yeah. after hours program starts at 10. Um, we would, you know, sit around and have chats and talk about God. And um, I learned to build a trust relationship with him. And um, it took me a while before I realized that I could trust him to tell him what was going on because I didn't, I didn't believe at that point, the adults in my life would take me seriously. And because that's what I had been, that's what had been communicated to me over and over again was that adults didn't take my abuse seriously and they, they weren't safe people. So, and speaking out put me at higher risk for abuse. Yeah. I think that's also the case for women trying to leave an abusive relationship too. Yeah. You're most, most likely to die when you're trying to leave. So yeah. like having an escape plan is actually quite a scary time. Um, when I started, you know, contemplating speaking out to someone, I always had to evaluate how well did I know them? Were they a safe person? Were they capable of uh, connecting with people where I would be taken seriously so that we wouldn't get I mean, the last thing I wanted was anyone to be beaten within a threat of their life. Myself, my sister, like, I didn't, you know, I <laughs> didn't want to go through that. And th those were the threats leveled against me. If you ever speak out again, we'll kill you. Mm. So I was, um, you know, and I was already like 14, 15. The abuse at that point was so bad that um, my sister was having a hard time sleeping at night. Like it, it was a lot of stuff going on where, and she was so precious to me and I needed to do something uh, about like I couldn't continue going on in the way things were going um I didn't know how to speak about my trauma pu like publicly at that point I hadn't shared the details of that in any sort of uh, official capacity so I remember writing a, a note where I wrote down everything that happened and I have bad grammar and spelling I'm still not great in either of those but I'm one of my good friends from school was he's a little bit of a grammar nerd and was good in school. And I was like, can you read this for me and correct my spelling mistakes? And it, I was going to give it to um, the person uh, who was running the camp, who was running the youth program, who I trusted, who I built up trust with, who was a foster father. Um, so I knew he'd have credibility. Like I had took me a good year of watching him before I was like, okay, yes, he's safe for me to go to with my story. Um, and I wrote it all down. And I think what was really weird for me, and maybe I don't know if it's like this for you, Josiah, but when you tell your story, when you're first starting to realize how bad it is, it's watching other people's reactions to what you went through that clue you in that what yeah. felt awkward or off for you, but you didn't realize how horrifying it was because you've gotten used to it. Mm -hmm. Seeing someone else respond, their facial expressions, their responses to what you've been through gives you an idea of how severe things were that you didn't yeah. realize that were really abusive. So my friend read through the whole thing and having him respond to it, like just, just in terms of, you know, seeing his facial expression, seeing the shock and horror of him recognizing what I lived through was one of those big clues kind of really 
um, as I was starting to get out of this whole scenario of um, how bad things were. And um, thankfully, you know, when I passed that letter on to my, to the person uh, who I gave it to, he, who was a foster dad, he took me seriously. And he um, got in contact with the right people, with social workers. And um, sadly in foster care, uh, they don't have enough foster homes. Most kids in abusive, my social, I used to want to be a social worker, so I don't want to side tangent too far, but I really need to say this because I'm passionate about foster kids because I was one, but I wanted to be a social worker to change things. And my social worker talked me out of it. And one of mm-hmm. the things she said is, Gail, I go to bed at night crying because I have a caseload of kids who are abused. One, I can't even visit all my kids the way I should because I have too many caseloads. So I should have 40, I have 80. So I'm not visiting these kids the way I should for follow-up. Two, um, there are more kids with abuse stories than homes we have to put them in. So unless there's a broken bone, a lot of those get placed at the bottom of the pile. I was at the bottom of the pile, okay? So um, one of the things that, so what happened was is um, uh, the person who I'd given the letter to who was fending for me, he talked with the social worker and then I got a call at school that day uh, from high school to come down to the office. And uh, I believe it was some overseers of my social worker uh, who were saying to me, I would never have to go back to that home again. Um, And that, you know, they had, they, they talked with me on the phone to kind of get details on the spot for me. But then they were like, there's a taxi ready to pick you up um, after school. And it's going to, they're bringing you and your sister to the police station to file police reports, like going straight there. And I remember we had to sit down and like, the last day I was in my foster home, I didn't know for sure it was my last day. I had a feeling after giving the note to my, to the person I gave it to that when he said he was taking me seriously, I did talk to one of my foster brothers who I knew could keep confidence. Uh, he was mentally slow. And I said, it might be my last time ever seeing you. I don't know when I might be taken out of here, but I might be. So I said my goodbyes to him, but I had to do all this very hush hush and very fearful, like in the pit of my stomach, if something went wrong, I could be in physical danger. I, in fact, I remember my foster mother saying to me, your social worker called today, the day before we ended up getting pulled out. She's like, and she talked to me in this really eerie, nice voice, which she only put on like for other people. So it was really creepy. I would always get a knot in the pit of my stomach. She's like, do you know why your social worker would be calling me today? And I wanted to pee in my pants because, you know, I didn't know if I would make it out of there alive, you know, and that would be taken out. I didn't have anywhere to go. But um, so we, we got pulled down to the police station. And then they said to us after taking all the police reports and we never went back there, they said, uh, we don't have a home for you do you think you have a relative or someone who could take you in? And I remember thinking, what a slap in the face to a foster kid. Do you think if I had a family member that would have taken me in that I'd be in foster care to begin with? Like, you're mm-hmm. kind of like rubbing it in that nobody wants me right now. Thank you. But, um, you know, actually I did think of it on the spot and I was like, well, maybe the, the kind person from church who was a foster father could take us. Cause she's like, we just need a temporary home for you guys. We don't need like, you know, uh, you don't need to find your house for the rest of your life, but somewhere like is a temporary while we look for a place. So he agreed to take us, my sister and I, so he's taken in two kids and uh, I mean, he fostered other kids before, but he ended up uh, taking in my sister. Like I ended up uh, moving out and getting married at 17 and got pregnant at 16. So that's, you know, I'll actually tie this in a little bit to abuse and how that works out in your adult life. But um, my sister lived there for the next 10 years with him. So they are the people I consider my foster parents today. They have been an amazing support, um, to my sister and I over the years and still are there for me And a parental, actually when my biological dad was dying. My foster father was, was there for me physically present with me in the hospital. Like 
and my bio dad liked him <laughs> was mm. like he's a nice guy <laughs> mm. like yes he is um but uh yeah so that's how we got pulled out of there um and that was hard to start to tell my story and and to be not sure if people would take me seriously but getting out at 15 uh was helpful to start the healing process versus if i would have gotten out at you know age you know it's like just in some ways and i'm gonna just like give this as a side note i think when i talk to friends who've grown up with their biological parents and it's been abusive it's a level harder than i think some of the things i went through because for myself i was able the christian narrative gave me villains and heroes and i was able yeah. to see my foster parents as villains and my bio parents even though they were limited were heroes so i could you know, like when I would watch the Wizard of Oz and there was a Wicked Witch, she was my foster mother personified. I was like, oh my gosh, she even speaks like her. Like, it's like, it's so identical. All the villains look like my foster parents, especially my foster mom. Um, but I'll often talk to friends who had complicated relationships with their parents who said and did abusive stuff to them. And it took them so much longer to get to that point because their parents weren't the villains. They saw how their parents looked after them or did good things for them. And it gets so murky in their head because they don't want to seem unappreciative of what their parents have done for yeah. them. And I feel like for myself, that was a little bit easier and cutting things up in my mind, you know, placing this as all bad and all good made it a little easier to say goodbye. Like when I left there at 15, they said, do you want to come back and say goodbye for closure? And I remember going closure, like my foster mother would never admit out loud that she did anything that she did like it, she would just like there what closure can you get from someone who won't acknowledge that they abused you yeah and that was a big one like that was an obvious thing to me that i would not get any there would be no productive conversation out of that at all there would be no acknowledgement of anything that was done and there was nothing healthy to go back to at all so that was a more clear-cut break for myself however going into adult life i think one of the things my childhood did to me was it broke my smoke detector like, you know, your house has a fire detector and yeah, did you have a question? Well, I just want to pause you. I, I'd love to go into your, into the adult aspect of this. I, I just wanted yeah. to go, go back and highlight something is how to respond to somebody when they come to you, um, you know, and, and when they come to you with an abuse story, because I heard good, good responses and bad responses. And I think that mm. that's something that... Well, I've experienced it because I'm I'm being more public on Facebook and on my my podcast about abuse, and so I have had people come to me and say, "Hey, I'm in an abusive situation," um, and uh, that's where I reached out to my counselors <laughs> because it's it's a situation where I think in the past because I I was a spiritual guide as a pastor, whatever, I probably would have felt confident to handle that. Hey, look, I'm a pastor; I can handle this. Come to me for counseling; we'll work it out. Um, now I realize actually I can really fuck this up for somebody. And especially like you said, um, the, the moment of leaving is the moment of danger for somebody in an abusive situation. Um, so I heard some negative things. Why don't you answer that question? How would you see briefly the wrong way to answer somebody when they say they're in an abusive situation and the right way, how would you kind of concisely put that? What is the right and the wrong way to, to respond to somebody that says, Hey, I'm being abused. I think the, the extremely important part is to validate their experiences, mm -hmm. like to acknowledge that it happened and not to minimize it. 
Um, I think where there's like, if you're dealing with a kid in abuse, you have to get authorities involved. Churches are notorious for trying to keep things in-house and not calling any authorities. Yeah, it's illegal to do. And it happens all the time, right? This whole, we keep, you know, you, you, you find out someone was raped by someone or some child was, and everyone is like, well, I think forgiveness is one of those really um, misapplied concepts in church that if someone is sorry and, you know, you talk to them and you talk to them about what they did wrong, then you bring it to Jesus and that's done without involving the law, which is an important process of the justice system that needs to be taken into consideration. And um, it's not your part to pardon people. Like there is a justice yeah. system that exists and people have consequences for behavior and you don't get to make those decisions um, as someone in leadership in a church. Um, I think, yeah, contacting authorities where there's abuse. I think the concept of forgiveness that's, I know your question was, you know, um, related to how to respond to someone, but I think for myself, an important piece in, when it came to the religious stuff was understanding forgiveness does not mean being in contact with your abusers. Um, it does not mean reestablishing relationship with someone. It doesn't mean asking someone else as a part of their healing or restoration to fix things with someone who is abusive towards them. Um, whether it was a rape, whether it was childhood abuse, um, all of that, there are, some things that break relationships in life and um that break trust and that break the ability to have healthy healthy sort of relationships um and we need to be concerned for the health and well-being of people uh if our if our goal is to preserve an ideal of forgiveness like i i know for myself when it came to marriage that was one where i felt like the the advice to uh, pray about it and just forgive was super unhelpful um and i i think I say like, are you about preserving the marriage or the institution? Because if you're idolizing marriage, then it's about the institution. Whereas if you care about the person, then you'll let go of an institution that's causing tremendous pain and suffering to someone and that's damaging them. And I think it's the same for relationships with people. Like if your goal is to highlight and lift up this idea that forgiveness means everything can be restored between two human beings when one is not willing, right? Like, cause mm-hmm. as human beings, we can only control our side of stuff. But like, even if both were willing, it doesn't always mean both are capable of having a healthy relationship. It doesn't mean that the person who may say they're willing isn't still repeating really harmful behaviors and not getting the help they need that would cause that to be a dangerous scenario for pursuing a relationship with them. Um, Yeah, there's there's just so many variables where like just, I, I remember reading a book on forgiveness when I was really young. And it was an adult book on forgiveness because as a kid growing up in the church, I'm like, I was trying to come to terms with what, what does this mean in terms of, um, you know, uh, what am I supposed to do with my foster mother? You know, like, how do I make that work? And coming to terms with, I mean, even in the evangelical narrative, uh, we're not all reconciled to God. It it takes two parts, (laughs) you know? that was helpful to see even in that regard is that, you know, God didn't force people to love him back. Like you can't have, if both people are not on the same page, the relationship is not possible, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in answer to my question of how to respond to somebody that says they're being abused, the first thing is to validate the person yeah. and wherever there's abuse, to authorities, there's a, you have to abuse, yeah. you have to report to authorities when there's abuse, even if, if you promise the person or if they say, Hey, don't tell anybody this. And you say, I won't tell a soul. Uh, and then they yeah. tell, tell you like you're legally obligated and that trumps whatever word you like, whatever promise you made. And then just not 
not pushing people into this forgiveness thing and this reconciliation thing and this sweeping everything out of the carpet thing. I, I just think that that is so important. And I just want to add my voice to that to say, look, you can like bitterness is something that will destroy your soul. Like, and so you do need to have some sense of releasing something. Now in saying that, that's a whole process and that might take years and years and years of grief and understanding how much this person hurt you. And well, like we talked about in the previous podcast, being angry, but that, that anger at a certain point turns to grief and then the grief and anger and anger and grief. And then eventually you get to the point of being like, there's a sort of a death of sorts and, and you're moving past it. So yes, letting go of bitterness, that is important for your soul's health. But letting go of bitterness does not mean that we're going to reconcile and get back with this person. Absolutely. And, and letting go of bitterness is not something where the day that you find out that this person has been abused for 10 years, you say, well, you need to forgive them. Like that is, that is just so inappropriate. Like that is, that is yeah. the, the long-term journey of their soul that they're going to be on for many, like you have no idea the type of pain that this person is going to go through. Um, yeah, so I that think bitterness can often be a fruit of not giving someone the space to grieve or feel sadness by trying to, to spiritually bypass or jump over the, that process. When we're pushing people to reconciliation and yeah. we're telling people they need to forgive and let go, we're often planting the seeds of bitterness because we're not That's giving a them really space good point. to go through their yeah, yeah. Not, we're not giving them the space to go through their human processing of emotions. And also bitterness can come from not having the space to be safe. If yeah. you're being forced to be in a relationship with someone who's unsafe, then you might carry a ton of resentment because you're dealing with the consequences continuously of being harmed by that person on a regular basis. And that's taxing and that's not healthy for you. I think, you know, if you're allowed to cut off a toxic relationship and you're allowed safe space for yourself to heal, then that's a good, that's a good way to avoid bitterness. Like if people yeah. who are so often the word bitterness gets used as a weapon, it's weaponized yes, in order to sort of force things along that instead of allowing them to go through a natural healing, healthy process, it's sort of a way to try and push people uh, into what we want them to do to make it easier for us. But I think if we really did care about bitterness, we would be encouraging people to cut contact where it's impossible to have a healthy relationship to help them not be better, to get safe, to have a safe place in their life from being yeah. abused. And um, we would be allowing them to feel all the emotional range that they need to feel. I think one of the helpful things I heard um, when it came to being numb is that if you try and cut off, like if you imagine emotions as a curve with up and down, that yeah. if you try and cut off the top of the negative, you end up cutting up off the top of the positive at the same time. A person's yeah. inability or lack of ability to feel the negative will affect their ability to be able to feel good things in their life and to experience yeah. that, which ends up making people feel depressed and just numb. For so. sure. Yeah. And we, uh, you can go back and listen to the podcast uh, called love thy abuser, where my wife and I heard a sermon at a wedding and we were just like, because it was this sort of stuff. It was like, if you love the person enough, then, then you'll change them. And we were thinking, no, you set boundaries in your relationships, including your marriage relationship, especially early on. And the person learns to respect you as a human being, as an equal partner. And then that, that creates a stable relationship. And I think that is how Jesus relates to us. He respects us. You know, he says, I, uh, I treat you like friends because I tell you what I'm about to do. He said, you know, greater love has no man than this, that he lays down his life for his, his friends, you know, like 
like Jesus, we have boundaries. We, we um, meet each other as equals, but if you, if you don't meet as equals, then there's consequences. You don't just endless. One person doesn't endlessly submit while the other person endlessly demands. There needs to be this mutual submission, but also mutual, Hey, this is as far as I'm going to go. And this is, this is the things that bother me. And you become vocal about that. And, and you let that, um, you set up boundaries in marriage and in all of our relationships. And then when people, because narcissists really just have one default mode, which is I am God and you will serve me. And they won't, they won't abide by boundaries ever. Um, if you have a true narcissist in your life, they will not treat you like an equal. They will pretend to for a while. And then they'll say something like, well, how much do you expect? You know, because it, it's hard work for them to pretend to care. Um, and at a certain point, they'll say like, how much of this do you expect me to do? Like, this is hard work. And, and the reality is they, they can't. You want me to anything. be honoring of you and respect you continuously all the time? You mean this is not just a means to an end to going back to me being in charge of your life and telling you what to do? Yeah. <laughs> or treating you however I want? I thought this is like a temporary penance I'm doing here to get yeah, like, exactly. what I want eventually. Um, um, so I've been talking for a bunch. I, I want to throw it back to you. You had wanted to talk about how these unhealthy patterns in your childhood resulted in unhealthy patterns in adulthood and kind of the long-term effect of this. Yeah. You had asked the question before, and I think I was trying to pull different ways that it impacted me. And I touched a bit on being numb and I touched a bit on mm -hmm. how I don't like being called strong. I think when I talked about, you know, talking about my trauma story out loud and, and giving my testimony in church and how it might've been a lot of a very premature in a lot of ways. I think one of the things I had no clue about and did not recognize was how, you know, growing up in an abusive home, broke my smoke detector. I call it like your house has a smoke detector and it lets you know it starts beeping if there's too much smoke. I feel like that got broken through a childhood that was very abusive. And it was easy for me to go into from an abusive home into an abusive marriage. Very easy to do. And in fact, like I stayed married for 20 years. That's a long time. And I, I probably wouldn't have left that scenario had my ex not actually left me. Um, he was mm -hmm. the one to end things. I, I took the step of separating uh, to create a good boundary. Oh, I need to, to jot down your comment about friendship. I'm going to do it now before I forget and then jump into my marriage. I hope everyone can stick with like planning and a thumbtack in marriage, uh, getting into a bad marriage based on bad family. But when you were talking about friendship and boundaries, I love that. Like that idea of Jesus telling things to his friends, like any healthy relationship has to have a mutual aspect of, um, care and respect for each other and has to go both ways whether it's marriage parents like there has to be a back and yeah. forth of love and trust and values that are the basis that's what defines a friendship and we need yeah. to like be i think churches need to teach what what that mutuality even looks like and i think um sometimes we're missing that idea completely of mutuality it's hierarchical structures hierarchical, authority over female yeah. um a lot of that kind of stuff going on. So for myself, going from an abusive, getting back to the marriage aspect, going back, going from an abusive home into uh, an abusive marriage, um, there was certain boundaries I didn't have. And it felt less bad in my marriage than it did in my childhood. So things are contrast sometimes or like mm. co they're comparative, right? Or relative. So like compared to what I'd been through as a child, being in my marriage, did not feel super heavy for me. Like I had learned when you're walking with like 
50 pounds on you and now all of a sudden the weight you're walking with is 20 pounds on you, then you could still think you're carrying nothing because you're like, no, I, I felt the weight come off, you know? And actually it was when I got separated that um, for the first time I was like, what is this peace I'm feeling? I had not known what it was to feel peace in my own home. Like I never knew what that even felt like to be at peace. And um, unfortunately, the advice I was given in the church scenario was uh, forgive, pray about it. And, you know, everything will, will be fixed that way. And that's not how things went down. But he had been um, threatening divorce every time he didn't get what he wanted. Um, he kept saying like, you know, if, we, if you don't think the same way that I think, we're done. Like that's where it really got to be very intense. Like if your opinion and mine don't line up on whatever beliefs I have that are important to me, we're done. Um, actually, I wanted to give you kudos when you were talking about deconstruction and your wife and you not being in the same place on your beliefs. I, I first of all, applaud you for your vulnerability and sharing, but I was very much admiring the way that uh, the respect that you guys have for each other in being on different journeys and not having the same beliefs and still being like, we love each other. And my goal isn't to make you think how I think. I didn't have that in my marriage. And as I was listening, like when I started deconstructing, uh, I think my ex got very nervous as well that I didn't uh, fall in line with his set of beliefs. Um, and it was a constant push to think exactly the way he thought. Um, There's a lot of uh, control there and the need to view things. But we initially separated because of violence in the home. Um, and that wasn't taken serious. I just wanted to mention um, this thing of, of if, if you don't do this, that, and the other, then I'm going to leave. That's a way of creating a power imbalance in the relationship. Um, and that's something that somebody mentioned recently, and it clicked because the person that is least committed to the relationship has the most power. So if both people are in the relationship and one person says, I'm, I'm one foot out the door, then that creates a situation where the other person has to say, oh, oh, well, I'll, I'll do anything that you want. Um, and so that's something that narcissists will do. They will threaten, you know, that they will leave at any moment. And that creates power because, you know, abusers and narcissists are always all about power. So I just wanted to just mention that. Yeah. So in, in my scenario, it was domestic violence was the thing that um, caused the separation. Um, I think the, so the emotional, uh, the control, the verbal abuse, the, the constant stress I lived under that I didn't even notice didn't get my attention. That's what I mean by broken smoke detector. Like I was so oblivious to that because I was used to dealing with difficult, way too used to dealing with difficult from my you childhood. Think it felt comfortable? I, I don't think I would have known, like, I don't think being in peace would have made me feel uncomfortable, but I, it, I think I was used to. So yeah. I don't know that comfortable was the word. Cause like, I'll say this. Well, hmm, that is a great question. You're making me think it over because being in a healthy relationship now is lovely, but there are moments where it's unsettling and it feels unreal. Like it feels mm -hmm. a little bit like being in a dream when you're treated mutually with respect and love and continuously treated like an equal when that's not at all what you were used to. Like there's a part of me that feels like I want to pinch myself. Mm -hmm. It feels similar to when I went from my traumatic abusive foster home into my good foster home. I remember always being afraid I would wake up and it would be a dream that I would like, what if I was stuck back there? Um, I, I almost had a hard time believing that this was really different, that it could be different. Um, 
you know, we had to walk in through the back door in my old foster home. We had to walk and we would try not to be noticed when we came in because we didn't want to get beaten over something. So we would, we would sneak into our room. Our room was in the attic. We would just walk through the back door, go through up the staircase and just hope not to be noticed. And on a good day, she wouldn't notice us. On a bad day, she was waiting by the back door, ready to like come after us for something she had just decided she wanted to go after us aggressively for, you know, whether it was, you forgot your, you you know, you left your Tupperware in the sink or you didn't take it out of your lunchbox. And she literally like, you remember those hard lunchboxes back in the day? We had these really big plastic hard lunch. She would smack us with those things. Like oh they, were, they were painful, but she was like, she, she was crazy with her, her violence sometimes. And she would go on a rage. Um, but I remember when I got into my good foster home, my foster mom would wait by the door for us, the front door, when we came home from school. And what she wanted to do was give us a hug, ask us how our day was, and like give us milk and cookies if that's what, you, like it was just not always milk and cookies, but like just make us have a snack for you guys or like, and I remember walking in the door, well, just seeing her at the door was traumatizing because I yeah. was like, that was not a good sign in my past. But to be loved and paid attention to did not feel normal that did not feel comfortable right away. And it took a long time to accept I actually was in a safe environment. And I think going from a 20 year marriage that was continuous stress, where like I was tr the, the desire to control and to, uh, to use God in negative ways too even. Um, and then to be in an environment where I'm loved and respected for who I am. I have the right to my own opinions and beliefs. Um, there's a mutual care, love, respect, all of that feels weird. So I guess maybe there could have been the comfort. I don't know if that's the word I like to use. It feels nice in some ways to be out of that right now. For the most part, it feels phenomenal to be loved well. I wish, you know, getting back to some of the unhelpful church teachings question, I know I'm jumping back, but the whole marriage is hard is something I heard nonstop in church. Right. Marriage is hard work. Marriage is difficult. And that gave me the impression that there's not such a thing as a healthy and an unhealthy marriage and relationship. And that made me, it totally tied into, look, I have a broken smoke detector. I know how to handle emotional abuse. Now I'm in an emotionally abusive marriage. Don't recognize it. Right. And it wasn't until things got physical that I made a decision to just be like, we're separating. And I got a lot of flack for it. And I had a lot of pressure put on by my spiritual community not to do that. But I was like, my, my therapist actually was like, you know, I had a client in your scenario and she didn't leave. And she ended up, um, he ended up attacking the kid. And then there was a suicide and the, both her, her kid and her spouse ended up dead. And he was wow. trying to tell me, take this serious. And I'm thankful for that because the stories I heard in church was, the person was violent or abusive, but then God intervened and fixed everything. Like yeah. you're always told the most extreme positive story. And the reality statistically in abuse scenario is that abused woman does not need to hear the one out of 300 stories where it works yeah. out. She needs yeah. to hear the most realistic scenario in hers, which is take this seriously. This is violence. This is abuse. And you need to care about the safety of your family, which was not the church message. You and know, the, the reality, I, w I wish right now I had some statistics in front of me, but the numbers of, of women who are killed by their husbands every year is staggering. And, you know, all of them thought that it wouldn't be them. But we need to take these things seriously. The church needs to take these things seriously. And women need to understand that uh, if he raises a hand against you physically, something has changed in his mind. He will not go back. And um, there needs to be things put in place. And either he's like, you need to take that seriously. You need to absolutely take that seriously. Because when, 
when somebody crosses that line and starts progressing down that road, it can absolutely lead to life-threatening situations and you need to get help and you need to have an exit strategy. And, you know, if he's, if you've gotten the police involved and he's absolutely on a path of recovery and he, and there's other men that know about the situation and, and there's restoration, perhaps, perhaps there, there can be a, a time to go back. But just because he said, I'm sorry, that's not adequate. There needs to be, um, that is a very definite line. Yes, emotional abuse is, is very difficult, but when it goes physical, um, we're in the realm of criminal actions and we're in the realm of other people need to get involved absolutely at this point. And you need to um, consider your physical safety and the safety of your children at this point. Yeah. Yep. Amen. Um, we are coming to the end of the time on our second podcast. I, I did want to ask you because you mentioned that you do have, you are part of a faith community now. Um, is there some way that you'd want to talk about how, um, how God is helpful to you at this point? So I'm still, um, wrestling with all of it. Like I'm not somebody who's, uh, you know, and I'm trying to at least look at it from a different perspective of wrestling is a good thing. Work out your faith with fear and trembling and, yeah. and doubts are healthy and good. And I don't, I, I, I probably lean more towards agnostic, but I think um, being in a faith community was important. I grew up in church. I was a youth leader, knew all the Bible verses, believed all this very deeply. And I have a lot of question marks now. Um, I'm in a United church in the U S um, I am dating long distance. So I'm I, before the pandemic, I was there every other weekend. That was my home church. And uh, uh, the church that I attended, uh, they had the first gay wedding, first black pastor, first non-segregation. Like they broke all of the, to me, what I see in evangelicalism has been a lot of um, denying uh, racial inequalities, a lot of uh, yeah. hierarchical stuff. Um, to be in a church that like is affirming even has been important. My daughter is, is, is uh, not straight. <laughs> so she's part of the LGBTQ community and in church, uh, she, in my old churches, that wouldn't have flown. Um, so to be in a place that's safe uh, for everyone has been great. Uh, United church. I know there's a United church of Canada as well. They're a sister affiliated somehow. Um, mm -hmm. And I know they run very differently from church to church. They're not as cookie cutter. So I haven't found any place in, in where I am right now in Canada that fits with what I'm used to uh, with my home church. But I think for me, uh, being in a church that told me our values mattered and not, they weren't trying to convert me into having a certain set of beliefs. Like if I went there as an atheist, they'd be fine. I mean, I used to look at that as, well, then it's just a social club and you don't really care about the gospel. And now I, I recognize it as a respect for everybody's journey. And we love you as a person, not you fitting into a certain set of beliefs. And that was a really big, important thing for me is I could come as I am. I mean, I always heard that in church, come as you are, but God doesn't, God loves you too much to keep you that way. Like it essentially is we want to move you into the right set of beliefs eventually. And I don't feel any pressure right now. And I, and that's important to me. The other thing for me that I've been unpacking in my spiritual journey has been the hierarchical part. I think that was one of the first things that led me into deconstruction was this idea of men in all my churches being the ones in charge and not women. I don't refer to God as he anymore. Mm. That's been huge. Um, actually it was my boyfriend who did that before I did. And I was like, I'm comfortable with God as he, I'd read the shack and I'd love that book for a lot of reasons, even though it was so controversial at the time, but I loved seeing God as a black woman. And, uh, remember it caused such waves at the time, but, um, I was okay with God being, I knew God was neither biologically male nor female, but I think, 
um, what my boyfriend said to me really impacted me. He said, I think God would always identify most with the most marginalized. And I think the most Mm. accurate representation of God will always be the most marginalized human beings out there. That's who God would identify the most with. So my, my boyfriend would refer to God as she, and it took, and seeing I have a reverend who's female, that has been tremendously healing for me to see women in leadership. Me being a female in churches that were patriarchal was very damaging was very Mm -hmm. toxic. Like I listened to your wife, uh, Josiah, and I'm like, she can preach, but I bet you she's never given, she was never given a platform as a woman. Nobody looks at you and sees your giftings. If you can speak Mm -hmm. and teach better than most men, um, they'll look at your husband and be like, we'll give him a platform, but you're a woman. So it's, I dealt with a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, in church environments as a woman who was in leadership, who was just a natural leader, it, it presented interesting and unique challenges. So having a female reverend has been beautiful and so my spiritual journey has involved being in a place that actually is more welcoming and open and allows people who are not straight and who actually is a diverse church not led up by just white men (laughs) like Mm -hmm. has black people in leadership and has women in leadership and where i'm sitting in the pews josiah i've never seen this before in my evangelical church just sitting with two dads with their little kid on their lap or two moms with their children sitting beside them never seen this before in church and i'm like this is so beautiful um, and to have women preaching and teaching and it to be respected and, and, and valued, um, the hierarchical structures that I was used to just see those being torn down, torn down has been healing for me, has been an important part of my faith, breaking out of that box that had a lot of toxic components and into something that's more true to the love of the best components of what I believed about God's love, um, and being more true to that than what I had before. So that's a bit of the shifts in my spiritual journey could go on forever. I, I, we cover a bit of that in escaping evangelicalism on, on our sure. podcast. We did like two episodes on that where I touch a bit on what that journey has been like, but yeah, that's a nutshell version. It sounds like you've experienced unconditional love. Yeah. Often through people who have been there for me, mm-hmm. who, have, uh, who have shown me what healthy love looks like. And, and love and acceptance without, you don't have to believe our beliefs or submit to our authority. We just love and accept you. Where you're at for real, without the agenda to change you into where we think you ought to be. Yeah, that's, that's pretty mind-blowing and change. That's a complete shift for me that I'm still trying to take in. Yeah. Yeah. And that is, I, I resonate with that too. I'm trying to figure out, you know, as somebody that was a teacher within evangelicalism, and these were kind of the the watershed issues. Where do you stand on homosexuality? Where do you stand on woman leadership? Where do you stand on, um, you know, sex outside of marriage or divorce? Like these were all the, the touchstone issues that defined who we were. Um, all about other people's sexuality for some reason. And yet Jesus never talks about abortion, never talks about homosexuality and never talks about sex outside of marriage either. Like he just, none of these favorite topics of evangelicalism made it into any of his speeches. And he was, anyways, that's, that's going to take us into deep waters. I'm trying to wrap up. Um, but it, it was all about defining who is the other and making sure that they don't get in here to make things dirty. Like that really is what it's about for evangelicals. And it ends up being all the marginalized people are the ones on the outside, you know, yeah. um, because they're marginalized, because they're not they don't fit within our idea of what normal should be. And it seems like Jesus, you know, the, the stories are all different. The, the culture is different, but Jesus was all about 
reaching out to the people that were marginalized and they were usually marginalized because their sexuality did not fit within the paradigms of second temple Judaism. You had loose women, you had women pushed into adultery or pushed into, um, you know, prostitution, or you had women who were the wrong um, ethnicity, or you had women who were just women. And so they weren't allowed to lead anything, but then he had them as part of his group and part of his disciples. And he had Samaritans, you know, he was reaching out to the other, whereas I feel like we are all about defining who is the other and making sure that they don't get power because we want all the power for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is a whole nother podcast yes. that we will not get into. Uh, Gail, I just so appreciate your time and appreciate all these things we were able to touch on. Um, I want to highlight this was a fun, as hard as the conversation was, it was a healthy and an important conversation. I hope yeah. anyone else out there who's dealing with uh, abuse, um, who maybe has had to go no contact with a parent and feels bad about it can realize there's health and healing and wholeness in being safe and not uh, caving into pressure to just force a reconciliation where there's no change. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm thankful that you brought up the topic. I really hope those listening to you can, can find some peace and, uh, Yeah, I'm happy for your journey as well. Cool. That does it for today. Thanks so much for listening to us. If you haven't already, please subscribe to this show on your favorite podcast app. And if you don't have one yet, head over to don'treatthispodcast.com to see a list of all the apps we're available on. If you have listened to these last two conversations, hopefully that means there's been something helpful or valuable in them to you. So please feel free to pass them along to your friends and family and spread the word. You can rate and review us on iTunes and follow us on social media. We're at Don't Repeat This Podcast on Facebook and Instagram and Don't Repeat Pod on Twitter. On behalf of my co-host Nate and Vicky, this has been Don't Repeat This. So while you probably shouldn't repeat this at the dinner table, let's keep having those healthy conversations that promote safety and healing as we care for ourselves and those we love.